0: This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Jim Sutter, CEO of the U.S. Soy Export Council. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with USEC's Jim Sutter, next. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. In a matter of months, the value of spot soybean futures jumped almost $6 a bushel. Jim Sutter, CEO of the U.S. Soy Export Council, says the paradigm shift had a number of influences.
1: Well, Jeff, I think there was one main catalyst, but obviously then it was a whole bunch of things that added to it and took us probably further than we ever imagined that it really would in terms of the price movement that we've seen. But I think that catalyst was, uh, and ironically, it was a year ago today when the China-U.S. phase one agreement was signed, and that kind of reset the open trading relationship between China, who imports 60% of the international trade in soybeans, so they're a huge importer on the world scene, and U.S., who is a very large exporter on the world scene. And as we all know, the prior couple of years before that was signed, we had been in, uh, you know, the, the, the word I don't like to use it, but we'd been in a trade war. And it had had a very negative impact when the U.S. was shut out from supplying that very big customer of soy on the global stage.
0: It's almost as if we had a perfect storm. You had African swine fever that hit the largest swine producer in the world. And then you had the trade skirmish that came about, so you naturally pulled back demand, and then you politically pulled back demand and that had a profound effect on u s producers and and the value that they have of their crop.
1: It certainly did you know and and as I think about it, it was uh, a year ago, and we were we were talking about we need to move the pile you know we had these very high carry out levels in the United States, and we were as we continue to do, but we were working very hard on building markets all around the world, trying to find places to ship our great U.S. soy products, but China was missing. And China, they probably wouldn't have been able to do as well as they did with not importing from the U.S. had they not had that ASF situation, but because they did, it dropped their demand down, so that dropped, as you said, the global demand. Uh, but but you're correct. It was the perfect storm, and it was a, a, a real difficult time for U.S. soy producers and the whole export supply chain.
0: And it would not be a surprise, for, from my perspective, to see the Chinese to perform a little gamesmanship here uh, to test a new administration. But is the tightness of the soybean supply globally something that may keep the Chinese in check here?
1: You know, I think so, Jeff. I think that's a you know that's a very uh, very very wise statement that you made, and it wouldn't be surprising at all to see that. But I think that it is tight. We think that the imports that China has been making, the continued purchases they're making, are not stocks building, but are to satisfy demand. We're seeing uh, questions about the size of the South American crop, so I think they're going to want to continue to have a good relationship. You know, building on the phase one with the new administration so that we can keep trade flowing. I don't think they want to to risk having a problem with that at this point in time.
0: So, Jim, what have you heard from from your perspective and angle about the rebuilding of the Chinese swine herd and other areas of livestock production that may affect their demand either for protein, soy protein, or even for feed grains?
1: Well, that's a that's a great question. Uh, so we believe that today we're back to 90% or higher of where we were pre-ASF in terms of both sow population and uh, livestock herd, you know, the growing herd of, of pigs. And we think that that will be back up to 100% in the first quarter of 2021, 20, uh, which we're, we're now in. So probably by the end of this quarter, we should be there. Demand is good. You know, when you talk to our team on the ground in China – feed millers are having good margins soybean processors are having pretty good margins demand for the products demand for the meat is good now this is the traditional uh, just prior to Chinese New Year prior to their spring festival so typically we see strong demand right now and then it sort of tapers off it's kind of like you know the, the crescendo that happens in our food supply system before Christmas here in the US but so that's taking place but all signs point to uh, a, a recovery there a couple of other interesting things that have happened, uh, you know, as we've gone through uh, kind of the combined ASF situation and then the whole COVID-19 situation, we've seen a shift in China away from the traditional wet markets. So less, and, and that maybe is less of an impact on pork, but really on poultry and on fish. People are now looking more to buy in a supermarket or buy a prepared cut of poultry or a, a fish that has been already, um, you know, kind of dressed, so they're ready to cook it at home, and it comes in a packaged form. So that's been a pretty pronounced shift also in the Chinese uh, food supply system, and we think that's having the impact probably of increasing demand because you probably don't get as efficient. You're not you're not utilizing necessarily all of the components of the of, of the, the whatever it is, the fish or the chicken, as you're dressing it rather than just slaughtering it or taking it home from a wet
0: market. Is that an effect of a continued growth in the middle class, or how has their uh, economy's challenges affected the overall state of of their food demand and the types of food that their consumers are buying?
1: I think the growth of the middle class is certainly allowing that to happen. I think what drove it was the desire to have uh, food delivered at home. Or the desire not to have to go into a wet market to buy your food, to either be able to get it uh, at a supermarket, which was perceived to be probably uh, healthier, or, or this food delivery—they're big at having things delivered to their homes uh, in China. So, it you know, to have a chicken delivered that doesn't really work, but to have uh, a chicken breast or some dark meat, you know, the, the drumsticks or something, it's much easier to do. But yes, you're correct that the middle class. And that, and the technology that they use, you know, the way that they order it, you know, it's kind of like our, uh, like our Amazon system, but they have several different platforms that they can use to do that with.
0: So then, thinking of the production system, it amazed me that China was the world's largest producer of swine, uh, but a lot of their production was backyard uh, herds, and they were feeding them scraps from the table. That's a different uh, that's a different paradigm today and the reality is the shift may actually increase demand for protein.
1: Yes, we think so. It's uh, you know the fact that they're no longer doing this swill feeding, the backyard feeding the garbage or feeding the waste products and now are feeding uh, the, the the you know we've probably all seen the pictures on the internet of the nine story high swine production facilities, the modern uh, biosafe uh, things that they are facilities that they have built. Uh, yes, and we we think that that will increase the demand for protein because you don't have those other sources coming in as a feedstuff, and also the changes that they've made with uh, with uh, fewer antibiotics being used in the feeds, and and just the uh, the the whole the the profitability currently anyway in the pork system in the pork production uh, system in China, is telling them to feed the highest quality feed they can to get the pigs through the system and to slaughter so they can uh, cash those profits while it is very profitable to be raising them.
0: Jim, when I talk mm-hmm. about the fundamentals of the market, uh, obviously we have been talking about Chinese demand. That's huge. But we've also been talking about weather out of the southern hemisphere. So how mm-hmm. is weather still a concern in this market outlook especially with the production of Brazil and of Argentina, are end users paying attention?
1: Oh, I think very much so. We've gone from a a situation where we had surpluses and the buyers of the world certainly had no reason to panic. They could just sort of continue to wait and prices would keep sliding down to the, the nearby lows. And today that's changed. We had uh, less production in the United States than we had earlier anticipated. It was a reasonably good crop, but it wasn't, you know, a real large crop. And now we get into South America, and the early projections were for, you know, record in Brazil, big crop in Argentina. And Mother Nature hasn't been cooperating. Mother Nature uh, continues, especially in uh, Argentina, has been pulling the crop size down. And likewise, in Brazil, there's been very erratic rain patterns. I think they've gotten a little better lately, but we certainly won't see uh, uh, the high-numbered type crop that we were hearing about earlier. I think the market's watching it very carefully. Uh, and I think, you know, with the increase in demand in China and the increases that we've seen in other places around the world, uh, yet to be seen what the impact of these higher prices is if we get some rationing taking place, But certainly, demand is strong, and we've eaten into the supplies, so people are having to watch it much more carefully. They're just not able to just kind of sit back and know that prices will uh, lay there at the low levels that they did before.
0: So building on that uh, same point, um, with 14 dollar a bushel old crop soybeans and new crop prices approaching $12, Jim, from your Mm -hmm. perspective, is rationing taking place yet? And and how is how could that affect our industry if supplies return?
1: Well, we're certainly seeing some buyers around the world delaying purchases. So I guess that means they might be rationing or at least they're drawing their stocks down. What we don't really know for sure is if they're reducing their demand or if they're just tightening up their supply so they can prevent having to buy the real expensive old crop soybeans. Uh, I, I think the impact that it can have, Jeff, is uh, clearly if, you know, you know, farmers are being given an incentive to produce more. That's what the market is telling them to do with these higher prices. So how many acres will we get in the U.S. next year? Uh, you know, I've heard early projections, uh, 89, 90 million acres of soybeans. Uh, that'll be a bigger crop, probably, if Mother Nature cooperates. We don't want to see demand being lost in these markets around the world, I think, uh, from everything we hear, uh, demand continues to be pretty brisk. Uh, so so hopefully uh, we won't see big losses in demand, and people who are buying those are looking out to where there's a cheaper price in the new crop situation, so they're not thinking they have to pay the $14, which might cause them to ration. It's something less than that. It's a more uh, normal price, and they're then able to continue to keep their demand going.
0: Jim, the U.S. is not the largest producer of soy in the world in terms of volume. So what's our leg up to maintain market share or to compete for the share that other countries have?
1: Well, Jeff, you ask a question that I, I, I love to talk about. I love to talk about the U.S. soy advantage. And we have been doing a lot of work on that uh, within our organization and obviously the industry as well. But trying to be able to communicate the intrinsic and extrinsic advantages of U.S. soy, the intrinsic made up of the superior nutritional attributes, higher concentration of amino acids and energy levels. So in terms of if you're feeding uh, chickens or pigs, that y- you get more nutrition in U.S. soy than soy from other origins. And we've got a lot of data that we can demonstrate that. And one of the things we're really trying to do is communicate that to people today, especially when these prices have gone up so they know how to formulate properly and so they know how to capture the full value in U.S. soy as they're making these uh, more expensive purchases than they would have made over the last couple of years. The other leg up that we have, and this is really thanks to our, our great soybean farmers in the United States, is the sustainability messaging that we have. You know, it's becoming more and more of an issue around the world. I think people are becoming much more interested, and it's, it's almost like the, the coronavirus situation helped drive this. They want to know where their food's coming from. They want to know, is it produced in a way that is harming the environment, or is, is it, can it be continued into the future? And we have such great data and such great information to be able to share about the U.S. sustainability. For example... If a European chicken producer were to use soy from US soybeans, either question Europe or question the US. But if they use meal from US soybeans versus what they normally use, which is a mix of probably two-thirds South American one-third US, they would reduce the greenhouse gas or carbon footprint impact of producing that chicken by as much as 40 percent just by making that shift. Now, I don't think they're all going to make that shift today, but the fact that that is possible and the U.S. soy brings that sort of an advantage, that is really a leg up we have on our competition.
0: So does a Biden administration and a 117th Congress that is obviously talking about a climate smart push, is that something that can work to our advantage in a global marketplace, if nothing more than from a perception?
1: I certainly think so. I don't think it can hurt us. I think we've got the track record. We've got the long-term data. I don't foresee our, our farmers changing their practices per se. You know, we need to make sure that we continue to focus on doing things right for the environment and using our no-till farming or minimum-till farming, all of those kind of things. But I think the, I think the government will be I don't know for sure, but I can imagine they will be continuing to promote that. USDA has done a lot to help with our sustainability uh, track record over the last years, and I just think I think people are becoming more concerned about that. You, you certainly, as you pick up the newspaper and, and look at the global news, you see people being concerned about what's being what's happening in some other countries. And one of the things I worry about is uh, you know as, as people look at uh, fires in the Amazon or something like that. Uh, Some countries, uh, uh, France notably, talks about, well, maybe we should just stop utilizing soy altogether. That is not what we want. So we are out there communicating, listen, you have an alternative. So we try to make sure that they know about our alternative and that I think the U.S. government can help with that messaging as well.
0: Jim, I'm asking you from an educational perspective. Clearly, the phase one deal with China did help. And now we do have a new administration. How significant is the beginning of the Biden team and the perceived Catherine Tai or the nominee Catherine Tai at USTR? How important now for this administration and their dealings with the Chinese?
1: Well, I think if they would take a, if they would come in and take a look at the phase one agreement and say, has it been good for U.S. agriculture? Has it been good for U.S. soybean farmers and the industry? I think think the overwhelming answer would be yes, it's been positive to be back in a trading relationship with China, such a big importer. And so I would hope that they would, whatever they do in terms of trying to build that relationship further into the future, that that would be considered and we would see the phase one trade deal continue to be honored and extended. I would think the Chinese would certainly want to keep that going as well. So I think there's a good opportunity. I would think both sides would be interested to come to a positive um, situation. I know there's lots of issues. It's a very complicated relationship, uh, much bigger than just agriculture. But I would, uh, you know, the old uh, adage that uh, President Xi has been known to say in speeches, talking about agriculture being the ballast in that big relationship, the stormy, potentially stormy relationship between China and the U.S., I would really hope that it could continue to be that.
0: What if the U.S. were to knock on the door of the TPP and say we'd like to come back in?
1: Oh, that's a a challenging question. Uh, You know, I think uh, we were certainly supportive of TPP previously. Uh, I think we'd need to see what's changed and what would be the opportunities. But I think, you know, I'm a believer that we are so much better off when we're collaborating and we're working together And we're trying to help stimulate the economies, boost the economies in these developing places, developing countries, because that's where the engine of growth is. Soy has enjoyed such growth over the last 30 years. And it's really because as people improve their standard of living, as they go from you know a low level of income and move gradually up that chain, they want to improve their diets, they want to eat more meat, they want to use more cooking oil. And soy is such a great solution for that. So uh, I realize that's kind of a broad answer to your question. But I think if if by the U.S. getting into TPP, it would strengthen it, it would help do that, it would help those developing economies, I would be uh, certainly, uh, I think we should be very supportive of that.
0: So Jim, stepping back and looking at the soy industry from the global perspective, is the glass half full or is it half empty?
1: I think the glass is half full. I am, uh, very optimistic, uh, you know, both from the sustainability perspective, the, the ability of the U.S. to continue to grow production in a sustainable way. Uh, one of the things that I like to look at as kind of the, uh, an ultimate measure of sustainability here in the U.S. are the multi-generational farms that we have. And I don't know of a single farmer that I, that I talk to, and I get to talk to quite a few of them, that that isn't interested in passing their farm on to the next generation in better condition than when it is today than when they took it over from you know a predecessor in the family so i think we have that going for us and the other reason i say i think the glass is half full is just what we, what i talked about a moment ago with the 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 incredible growth in demand that we've seen 3 or 4% per annum in terms of global soy demand growth over the last 30 years I think that can continue as long as we let global economies grow. If we work together to try and help foster that, I think that there is a great future because it's a really a basic product. People want to improve the, the protein in their diets. They want to consume more protein and they want to consume more cooking oil. In some large population countries, we we have a program in India right now called Right to Protein, and we're trying to highlight not in a negative way, but in an educational way. We're partnering with several different health groups there to try and show them the low consumption of protein that they have, the real shortage in their diets, the deficiency that they are subjecting themselves and their children to, and the negative impact of that. So just imagine if in a country like that they all want to consume more protein. Well, the U.S. farmer is going to ultimately be called on to help provide more protein to the world as that demand continues to grow. So again, a long answer, but yes, I'm, I think the glass is very much half full.
0: Well, Jim Sutter, it is a busy time, and it is uh, the beginning of a new year. We are grateful that you would take time to spend with us here on this edition of Open Mike. You've been here before. This is Open Mike, and today, Jim, you have the last word.
1: Well, Jeff, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you, and it is, uh, it, it, it's is—it's more fun to be talking with you today, maybe, than on previous times. So it's, uh, you know, as we've uh, it really has been very good to be able to talk about some of the things that we have going on. And, and my sort of closing comments would be just a couple things. I'd just like to thank all of those that are involved in the U.S. soy supply chain and the export supply chain, all the way from those, you know, that supply farmers, farmers, export elevators, grain elevators, processing plants, because they did such a great job over the last year. And so as we're out talking around the world, we're really able to talk about the great reliability and the great performance and the great quality, all of those kind of things. And lastly, I'd just like to thank all of the other organizations that we collaborate with within the soy family, ASA, USB, and all of the state associations, and then the other export groups that we work with, uh, Grains Council and many others. Uh, as we do work around the world. But it really is collaboration that makes it all happen.
0: Our thanks to U.S. Soy Export Council CEO, Jim Sutter, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.